love that exuberance. Let's stay standing a moment and talk to God. God, we have sung to you and heard from you even in the singing. Sing about waiting on you. I know that while waiting is one of the roughest times of life, and we do it with hope as we sing about. We just talked about the fact that we have security, that knowing the promise of the Bible that Christ is before us, behind us, and that we are firmly held. And God, I pray now that as we listen to you, I pray that every one of us would just be willing to hear what you would say individually, personally. I know there are struggles, there are hurts, there are difficulties, there is loss. There's disappointment, discouragement in the face of difficulty. And Lord, we sing, let you get your hopes up. And some of us just can't even sing that today. But I pray that we will receive the truth of that song. And we will receive from the study that we're going to do today security. And that we will receive comfort and we will... Uh, have hope and that our faith will be ignited or reignited or energized or re-energized in some way that we have been able to pursue you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. That'd be awesome. I just really appreciate you being here today and all those who are watching online and will be watching in the future at Wayne Brown or Eschaton or Facebook Live or YouTube, all the ways that you can watch our services or streaming them. Just so glad that you're all with us today. And so we begin this series today, a four-part mini-series on the book of Ruth. And I had people talk to me in, this, in the lobby after first service, and they actually said that they had never, ever read the book of Ruth. And so they were part of a tradition that you didn't spend much time in the Old Testament. And so uh, when I announced last week we'd be talking about Ruth, they actually read it this week, and so they could get ready and were surprised by some of the things there. So we're in a four-part mini-series. Today's episode one, and we're going to be looking at, and it's about the meaning of, uh, it's a story of love and redemption. That's what Ruth is all about. It's a story of hope. In Ruth, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a real story of the real lives of real people who had real problems, who had real hurts, and who, in spite of their pain and suffering, found a real God to be there for them, to be present for them. Ruth is a story of redemption. As God shows his hand through the actions of uh, his sovereignty and then through the workings of the characters that we're going to look at in the story, it's a story of redemption, but it's also a story of love. It's a story of romance. We're going to look at all that goes into what many of us, in fact, some of us, the only thing we know about Ruth is a story of romance and love, but it's way more than that. This entire book is about the love that God has for us and then the love that he wants us to share with others because we are loved by him. That's what this entire book is about, what God is doing. This series is for every one of us, though, who have at some point, we've been at a place where we've been honest with God, and we've been desperate for God, and we've been disappointed about where we are at this moment, and we've looked up at God, and we've said, God, where are you? Where are you? God, I I can't see your hand. I can't see you at work. It's for all those who have asked God, how can these circumstances be from you? 
And more specifically, if God, you didn't keep these circumstances from happening and occurring, then how are you going to redeem this? How can good come out of my situation and my circumstance? This series is for everyone who's had the audacious faith to shake a fist in anger at God. Every one of us. If you ever wondered where the God of promise and God of provision and God of power was when you needed him and he didn't seem to be present, this series is for you. It's for you. So with that as an introduction, are you ready to hear from God? Ready to hear from him? I think we are. So go ahead, if you would, get your message notes out of your program. Open your Bibles up to Ruth. All the verses will be here today, but if you want to find Ruth, it's Four chapters, so it's a short book. It's in between Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. So if you want to find that, you can be there. We're going to be there over the next four weeks. So I want to begin today with just a definition to help us to get an understanding about a word or a concept or a theme that goes throughout the book of Ruth. Even though it's not always verbalized clearly, uh, when you know that it's there, you're looking for it, you're going to be able to find it, you're going to be able to discover it, it's going to give you hope, you're going to be able to see things you've never seen before when you understand that word hesed. It's H-E-S-E-D in Hebrew, it's hesed. And we want to talk about, because Ruth is all about love, and God's love for us and the love he wants to have for one another. Hesed is primarily a name for God or a character trait of God. It's describing how we can count on him, but it's also talking about how as God loves us, then we can love others with a hesed love as well. So let's just talk about what hesed means. You want to write this down. Here's the way I've just described some definitions here on the screen behind me. It means mercy. It means kindness. It means faithfulness. It means loyalty. It means steadfast. I left some blanks, some space there that you can write those down. It means mercy, kindness, faithfulness, loyalty, steadfast. It's talking about loving kindness. It's talking about loyal love. It's talking about steadfast love. It's talking about the mercies of the Lord never cease. They're available every morning for us. Hesed love. It's a stick to it kind of love. It's a covenant love, as we're going to look at today. Hesed is a loyal, enduring, relentlessly committed love. It's kindness that chases us down. It's a kindness that never gives up. That is hesed love. It's a strong word. It's a strong concept, strong phrase. And you're going to see it's difficult for us to do. And we're so glad that God does it with us. Now, one of the resources that helped me a lot in this series, uh, about, I guess, a little over a year ago, I bought a book because I liked the title. And so I bought a book, and I put it on my bookshelf. And then I was looking at uh, a series. I, like, I, I wanted to talk about love, and I was going along, and I was looking at the books, and this book popped out. It was called The Loving Life. And I said, oh, I want to more, know more about this. So I took it home, and when I took it home, I put it on my fireplace, man, uh, little shelf in front of my fireplace where you can sit, and I laid it down there, and then it's laid there for another two months or so. And so it was it. finally one day I picked it up and I said, okay, loving life, what does that mean? I was on a day off. I had a little extra time. I thought I'd pick up a book and read a little bit. And I opened it up. And to my amazement, it's a book about Ruth. The loving life is all about Ruth and how God showed his love to her and how God then wants 
and then how she loved, how Naomi loved, how Boaz, it's just all about love, and it's about the loving life. This book has rocked my world, and it has created such a disequilibrium for me that I didn't know I could have when it comes. I thought I was a lover. I thought I knew how to love. I thought I knew how to care. I thought I knew and understood God's love, and this has rocked me. Because it's so much more than I ever could have imagined. So if you want any book that you would read this fall, anyone, you would say from now to Christmas that you want to buy a book, I, I'm still, still about probably most of them this morning because of how I said that. So we're going to have more if we don't have today. This would be the book I just want to recommend, that you would grab this. It's not easy. It's challenging. You're going to have to just dig in. You're going to have to let it penetrate your heart, and it's going to speak to you. But he starts his book by defining and talking about Hesed love because that's what it's all about. So I just want to, I have a video here where he actually describes it a little bit, so let's look at this. The idea of Hesed love, it combines two ideas, the idea of love and commitment. So in other words, my love for you is not based on you. It, it's a setting of the will to love, regardless of how you respond to me, and even remarkably of how I feel. I'm fascinated with the idea of Hesed love because it offers several promises. One is that it, it can uh, unmask the frames that the culture has uh, given us where we unwittingly breathe kind of the air of this world. One of the things in modern culture that is just sort of the spirit of the age is the preservation of freedom. But the very nature of love is to narrow the life. It limits the person. And that does a couple things. One is it just strips your ego. It's just self-dies in the activity of love. But probably the best thing is that it draws you into union with Christ and you get to taste God in the activity of loving. And that's probably the, one of the weakest parts of our tradition if we've lost this sense is you get to know God through the activity of loving. And by far, that is the best part of love. That's right. And so when he said it narrows our freedoms, uh, we live in a world that we want to be free. We want to be able to express love, experience love, but we want to have all the freedoms to define it the way I want to. And it really comes down to this. And I've heard this phrase used many times, and it's like this. It's like, I have to do what's best for me. That's the air of the age he was mentioning there. That phrase is not from God. I have to do what's best for me. Now, we have to take care of ourselves. You're not saying that we go into some kind of self-hatred mode. But I have to do what's best for me. What he's saying here is I have to narrow that down, that I have to do what's best for you. I have to do what's best for you. I have to do what's best for the people in my life, in my world, my family, my, my coworkers, my church. I have to think about you as I live my life. That's Hesed love. And that's what we're going to see in this series. It's going to be deep. Deep. When we look at it, here's how he defines it. He says, Hesed love is a Hebrew word that is used primarily in reference to the loyal love of God. It means steadfast love and combines the love and loyalty in one word. Hesed is a stubborn love that won't quit and won't give up. It also refers to the loving kindness of God. It combines the idea of commitment and sacrifice. It's a one-way love that needs no reciprocation. It's a love without an exit strategy. Hesed is the opposite of the spirit of our age, which says we have to act on our feelings. Hesed says act on your commitments. It's a stubborn kind of love. That's the kind of love that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. I believe it's the kind of love that can rock your world and change it. 
So we're going to look at this, and just, mo- uh, just as we go through today, I'm going to show you every moment where I sense that there's Hesed love being expressed, because it's God's love for us and, God- and our love for others. So we-, we give Hesed love, we receive Hesed love, and then we give Hesed love to God. So we're going to see that all throughout today in this series. Let's begin in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So it begins with some context. It helps us know what's going on. It was written in the time when the judges ruled. And so we know in the time of the judges ruled is that there was this 400-year period of time uh, from the time when Joshua died until um, the nation of Israel finally got a king. It says that they didn't have a king. And so that was the period of time, 400 years. And so it was a period of time when the people would come to God and then they would fall away from God. And then God would send a judge. The judge would redeem them. The God, God, judge was, they didn't set, get set back on path with God again and they'd fall again. It's just a period of time that happens and it happened again and again and again. So at the end of that time, and you might write this down, Judges 21, 25, at the end of that time, it said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the period of the judges. Does that sound like today? Everyone did what was in their own, right in their own eyes. And that's the period of time that we're looking at right here. I don't have time to talk about the whole idea of Moab and what that means, but the story begins in Bethlehem. I can't talk about that. Bethlehem is where little, little town of Bethlehem. We know that from Jesus, and that's where Jesus was born. Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so we have the house of bread that is living underneath a famine. And so that, you know, there's this disequilibrium here as I'm living in the place that should be full of riches and should be uh, full of plenty, plentiful food and supply, and we're going through a famine. And if you look at this, you can say, well, it's probably because they're in one of those seasons of the judges where they're away from God. And God says, when you're away from me, you're not going to reap my benefits when you're away from me. Now, you just got to be careful when you read Ruth because Ruth never, never places judgment on people. It never gives you the reason why things are happening that we might want to theologically place on there. The book of Ruth doesn't do it. The narrator doesn't do it. God doesn't do it. The characters don't do it. So we have to be careful not to judge them and think, we know why this is happening. Let's just say this. There's a famine happening. God's in charge of all things. He's allowed a famine to happen in the land. Because of that, Elimelech and Naomi... They make a decision that they're going to do something different. And so they take their boys, their two boys, they say, we're going to leave the land, the land of promise, the land God has given us. We're going to leave that, and we're going to go to a place called Moab. Moab was a fertile place. Uh, It was a place that uh, where there was a lot of greenery and water and crops. And so here's a map. I'll just show you the map here of what it looks like. So they're in Bethlehem. We got the Dead Sea between Bethlehem and Moab. So they took a trip. It was about 50 miles from Bethlehem up over the top of the Dead Sea, across the Jordan River, down through Reuben. This is a, uh, Reuben was a land that was uh, very hilly and uh, rocky and difficult, kind of wilderness area, across the River Arnon until they got to Moab, and then that's where they were, the land that was uh, plentiful and green and lush and that they could find a way that they could feed themselves. So I don't have time to tell you the whole reason about why they should never have gone to Moab, just to say that Moab was one of God's enemies, one of their enemies. And so they are going to the enemy's land. 
and they're hoping that in the enemy's land that they're going to be able to find food, but the enemies are not going to kill them, or they're also not going to influence them. And so they go to that place in order to find a plate of opportunity to have food. But as the story unfolds, God uses, I believe, God uses the famine, and he uses the move to Moab, even though that was out of God's will. God can still use us when we're out of his will, that he uses this in a way that's going to move his story into the future, the story of redemption. So let's read on. It said, now Elimelech and Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. Oops. Oops, they're not supposed to be there. And the Bible has strict injunctions about not marrying specifically Moabite women. And so they went against the biblical instructions from God, and they did this. Once again, there's no judgment placed here. There's no judgment assigned. Married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, and they had lived there for about 10 years. After they lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion, the boys, also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and husband. So they left Bethlehem, the promised land, because there was a time of drought, the time when they were needing to wait on God, and they took matters into their own hands, and they went to Moab, and when they get to Moab... Then Elimelech dies, and then the two boys take wives, once again, took matters into their own hands while they were there. And then what happened is, is that as they were there, we're about 10 years later in the story now, and we find that we have, we've had um, three weddings. We've had two weddings and three funerals. Later, what we find is Naomi, Naomi finds herself husbandless, sonless, with two daughters-in-law from a foreign country. That's the condition they find themselves in. And this is a huge loss for Naomi. She has no husband to care for her because women had, were, had, uh, were the low, well, some of the lowest levels of value and worth and culture in that day. I'm so glad that we're making steps, that we're just helping that not be the case today. But it was not true then. We have to talk about what was true then. She had no sons to care for her, no husband to care for her, no one to carry on her name, no grandchildren for heirs. This is all really important because if you don't have these, your name's going to die and you have no status. Women were considered property and were most often vulnerable to sexual and physical abuse and to slavery. Now, one of the beautiful things that I discovered in the story of Ruth, even though it's titled Ruth, I thought it was about Boaz. One of the amazing things I've discovered is how the book of Ruth elevates the role of women in the story, the redemption story of the gospel. Elevates women to a new role. They become the main stories in, a, in this, in this um, account, and women were never given the main line, the main character in any writings of that day. But since God was writing the story... He was writing it. He made it not just to be about hesed and love and redemption, but he also made it about honoring the role of women and the place they have in his story. So there's another book I want to recommend. This one was so challenging. It's called The Gospel of Ruth, Gospel of Ruth by Carolyn Custis James. And this lady writes, she says, this is a, um, she placed a lot of weight on this book because when you start the book, she says that she was made to write this book. So there's a lot of weight given to that when you start reading that she believes that this was her story. And she writes about the role of women in the story of Ruth and the story of the gospel and how God elevated women 
in that culture in a day where there was no role for women, there was no honoring. And I believe that as we talk about Ruth, that we can also raise the role of women in our culture and our church. And I'm so excited. So it's called The Gospel of Ruth. You can look at this if you want to and read. I'm going to read a quote from her in just a little while. So let's move on. Naomi is an immigrant in a foreign land with daughters-in-law from two interracial marriages. She's a widow. She's about, without means of making a life of supporting herself, let alone her daughters-in-law. She's a woman that's feeling she's left at this place right now where it's bleak. It's just as bad as it could possibly be. And she believes that God is absent, that God has forgotten her, that God has forsaken her. And what I want to do is I want to pull out three responses that we can see in Naomi that you and I can have when we, pay, we face these times when God seems absent. The first is this. When God seems absent, focus on what he's doing. Focus on what he is doing. So Naomi and her daughters are working in any way they can, and that probably meant that they were gleaning from the fields of their day in Moab without care of any man over them. And so it was scary. Uh, it was difficult. No one was helping them. It was uh, extremely strenuous labor that they were in. And then it says in verse 6, <laughs> When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So somehow, in the age before 24-hour news feeds, Facebook or Instagram, Naomi found out that God's presence seemed to be, have returned to Bethlehem. I don't think it was ever missing but they were judging what they were seeing, whether God was present there or not, and that her people were experiencing blessing and that it was having crops that were available and it was rich and it was plentiful. And so then out of desperation about where they were, remember they'd gone all the way from Bethlehem around to Moab and they're living in a foreign land, all the negative things about where they were, out of desperation for where they were. And I believe, I believe with a glimmer of faith and a glimmer of hope, Naomi decides to go home. She decides to move back to where she knew God was. You know, anytime that you've moved away from God, one of the things you can always know is that God hasn't moved. And so if you want to get to God, go back to where he was. So they went back home. They went back to Bethlehem. This is what it says. It goes on. It says this. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set on the, on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So they're going on, they're going back. 50 miles, remember, 7 to 10 days. So somewhere along the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, probably not very far, maybe a day in, so she said to them, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, underline that, kindness, if you have shown kindness, underline that, to your dead husbands and to me. Remember, one of the definitions of the word has said was kindness. This is the word has said. So it's one of the, kindness. So they're showing kindness. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She's praying that her daughters-in-law will experience hesed love. She's showing hesed love by her prayer for them that they would experience God. She loves them deeply, as we're going to see next. She kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who can become your husbands? So she said, going with me is a dead-end road. Going with me is a sure death sentence in your life. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. 
And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? It's all about carrying on the family name. Would you wait? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, you could never wait that long. It's not possible. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. Because she's saying, you have opportunity, you have hope, you have a place you can go. I don't have anything before me. It's more bitter because the Lord's hand is turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. It was a lot of crying over the loss that they were experiencing. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Underline the word clung. We're going to come back and talk about that in just a minute. So Naomi shows the heart of Hesed love. First of all, Orpah and Ruth show the heart of Hesed love to begin with as they start on the trip. Naomi shows the heart of Hesed love when she says to them, it would be much better if you left. She's, remember, she's narrowing down. Freedom, is love is narrowing it down and sacrificing for another. So she's narrowing it down. She's saying the best thing for you, not the best thing for her, because the best thing for her would be to have them along to help her to have food and have some way to have a way that they could make a living. But the best thing for them would be to go away. So she's narrowing it down. She's showing it by giving them companionship, but by releasing them from any obligation they felt to go with her. She knew it would be difficult if they turned and didn't go with her to Bethlehem. It would leave her alone. It would leave her in poverty. But she was willing to sacrifice. This is Hesed love, you guys. This is why this is so hard. This is why it's so difficult. Hesed love sacrifices their own safety and their own future for others. Even Her future looked slim. But she was one to sacrifice her future for the future of her daughters-in-law. She prayed to God. She said, God, I pray that your hesed love would come over them, that they would know your kindness. She was more interested in the well-being of Orpah and Ruth than she was in her own. So once again, Orpah made the sensible choice. Orpah did what was right in her own eyes. And Orpah went home. She went back to her mother and father and to her village where that she could have people that would care for her, where there would be opportunities for her to remarry, and that she could have children, and that she would have someone to carry on her name, and she would have security, and she could have inheritance. She did that. Once again, there's no judgment given here on Orpah. And you have to be careful that we don't judge Orpah either. She did what was seemed right in her own eyes. But Ruth, on the other hand, she displays the heart of Hesed love here, and she chose to throw herself at Naomi's feet. It says she clung to her. She didn't just throw herself there. She clung to her. And that word clung is a verb. The first time we find it is in Genesis chapter 2. And it says, a man shall leave his wife and uh, leave his family and cling to his wife. That's the first time it's actually used. It means to cling to. It means to keep close together. It means to be joined together. It's interesting that it doesn't just imply that they're going to go on a trip together and they're going to be close. It implies oneness. It's a coming together that she's committing herself, covenanting herself in Hesed love to go with Naomi wherever Naomi goes. It's love, Hesed love exemplified. And folks, it's how God wants us to love one another. But more importantly, it's about how God loves us as he comes to us. He, Christ before me, Christ behind me, clings to me, holds me firm. So as Naomi showed Hesed love toward her daughters-in-law, Ruth shows Hesed love toward Naomi, God's showing his Hesed love toward all of them at the same time. So once again, Naomi tries to convince Ruth to go. She says, look, okay, Naomi, look, I just need to do this because it's, I think this is best for you. This is what seems right in my eyes. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. 
go back with her. And then Ruth expresses her loyalty in one of the most famous covenant commitments that we have in the Bible, and it's still used today at many weddings. Ruth covenants herself to Naomi and Naomi's God. She says this, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where will I go? And where you stay, where you will where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So here's what Ruth is doing at this moment. She's signing her own death sentence, as far as she can tell, as far as she can see. She chooses to become a foreigner in a strange land, in a widow with no family to care for and no family to protect her. She signs up for no children who will be able to provide for her and care for her in her old age. And folks, I just want you to know, this was Ruth, many scholars say this, this was Ruth's conversion moment. She could not have made that choice except she said, I'm going to choose your God as my God. She chose the God of the Bible, Yahweh, as her God. And because she said, you will be my God, he will be my God, I will follow you, I will go with you, and I will trust him. She's placing her trust in God's Hesed love for her, which allowed her then to give Hesed love to Naomi. Okay, so that's kind of what is all going on in the story. I got two more ideas, and we'll close. One is this, is that how do you respond when God seems absent? Second is this. I need to tell him what I'm feeling. So I need to look for what he's doing. Now I need to tell him what I'm feeling. Tell him what I'm feeling. Folks, it takes deep faith, okay, to tell God you're disappointed in him. It takes deep faith to do that. See, people often accuse Naomi, and I might have been one that would have been in the same crowd, of having little or no faith. Tell me, Amy, what are you thinking about? You're, you're, you're accusing God. It's not as bad. Look at what you're saying about God. I can't believe they put this in the Bible. I love about the Bible. It's so real. See, I accuse her of having little or no faith as she accuses God here, but I think the opposite is actually true. She has a glimmer of faith. She has a glimmer of hope. She, even have, she may have more faith than I have in her willingness to tell God how she's feeling. It takes deep faith to get down in the grit and the mess and express honestly to God what you're feeling. So in verse 13, she expressed it the first time. She says this, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. She can only see right now how she's feeling about life. And she's saying, it's the Lord's hand is turned against me. The Lord's hand is against me. That's how she's feeling. And in the next verses, it says this. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Remember, it's been over 10 years since she's been gone. Bethlehem's a small place, and people remember her by the way she looks. And then she says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. So Naomi's mean, the meaning of Naomi's name is pleasant or sweet. That's what Naomi means, pleasant or sweet. And she didn't want to be called pleasant or sweet anymore. 
She didn't want that to be the way she was referred to. So she changes her own name. She says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Bitter. She said, now my name, my last name is woman. My first name is bitter. My middle name is old. I'm bitter old woman. <laughs> That's what she said. That's who I am. I have no husband. I have no sons. I have no grandchildren. I have no provision or means to provide for me. I'm a bitter old woman. Then she goes on to say, I went away full, full. I took away. She, she wasn't full when she went away, but compared to now she was. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Sweet, pleasant. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, I want to show you how I believe in these words that Naomi is showing faith. Because she's shaking her fist at God right now. She's, and she's letting everyone know that God has disappointed her and that God has not come through and that she left full and she's come back empty and she's bitter and she's angry and she's said, God, where are you? And she's shaking her fist at him. How was that faith? It's because of the word she used for God. She used two words. In your translations, it said almighty twice. And it says the Lord twice. Almighty is the word Shaddai. So when she refers to God as Shaddai or the Almighty, she's saying, I believe that God is all powerful, that he has all power. By faith, she's saying that by using that name, that title. And then she says, the Lord or Yahweh, Yahweh. When Moses was asking God, who shall I say sent me when he was going to go to the Pharaoh? God said, well, tell them I am sent you. What does I am mean? Well, I am means I am, I am, I am. And some scholars believe that what God was saying there is, I will be to you all that I need, all that I am. I will be to you all that you need. And so I'm the good God. So what Naomi's saying here is she's saying, as she's shaking her fist, she's saying, God, you're powerful. God, you're good. But you're just not powerful in my life. It's not good for me. But she had deep faith that it was okay to shake her fist in the face of God, to shake her fist at him. Even though she can't see his power, even though she can't see her goodness, she still believes there's, some, there's a flicker of faith in her of hope. She still believes he's all-powerful and all-good, but she struggles in believing he's all-powerful and all-good to her. So she says, he has turned against me. Here's a quote from Carolyn Justice from her book, The Gospel of Ruth. We need to take a long, hard look at Naomi. For the truth were to be known, there's a little bit of Naomi in all of us. Hopefully, we won't come near her Job-like level of suffering. But we live in a fallen world. And all of us, sooner or later, will drink deeply from its sorrows. Naomi is here to remind us that in those long, bewildering phases of God's silence... Our struggles are real, and we can be honest about the state of our hearts. Her full story reminds us that our struggles are important, and that even when there's nothing left but rubble, God is mysteriously, mysteriously at work in the mess. Folks, I want to give you permission today. Some of you have thought, really, I can do this? You can shake your fist at God. But I want to encourage you with this thought. Don't get stuck there. Find out the God. Find out more about the God that you're shaking your fist at. Learn more about him. But it's okay to express your feelings. 
This is one of the things I love about community groups that we're starting this week, is that when you go to a community group and you're in one of those seasons, you can get around other people because honestly, you need help with perspective. And when you're in these seasons and other people can reflect to you, they can give you empathy, they can listen, they can care, and then on occasion they can tell you truth. But they need to be careful about how quick they are to tell truth. And then to be able to share with you who God is and what he can do. Okay, last idea is this. How to respond when God seems absent? I need to look for God, what God is providing. I need to look for what God is providing. So the beauty of the book of Ruth is that we're going to discover that God always provides. God is always working. God has a plan. He has a plan of redemption, a plan of love, and he's always working his plan. And the beauty of redemption is that God always has a plan even when he feels absent and it looks like he's not working. We have to trust that God has a plan. He's there. Verses 21 and 22, and we'll close. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the Harvey, barley harvest was beginning. So just think about this story for a moment. Okay, they walk into town. Ruth, Naomi together. Naomi's probably walking in the lead. The people see her and say, aren't you Naomi? She says, no, call me bitter old woman. My life was full, but now it's empty. I have nothing. Who's with her? Ruth. Is she empty? No. Ruth is right beside her. In fact, I kind of think that it went like this. is the moment that she grabbed her leg that she didn't let go. And Naomi goes all the way to Bethlehem like this with Ruth just hanging on. So she's clung to her and she's not going to let go no matter what. She's going to be there. And they get into town and she says, I don't have anyone with me. Well, what's that appendage on your leg? God is providing. He provided for you. Look for what he's providing for you. But Naomi's grief was clouding her eyes to what God was doing. But it's not stopping God from working in her life. Just know that. Her pain is blinded to her seeing that God is not against her, but the opposite is true. Her Hesed God is working in the details of her life for purposes that are good. Naomi didn't come home empty. She came home with Ruth, but she came home with more than that. So I'm going to just give you a sneak peek as to what's coming. There's a sneak peek right at the end of this when it says they came home in time for the barley harvest. It didn't say they came home at the end of harvest. It didn't say they came home when they were planting the seeds. It came, they came at the, end of, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Here's how a harvest happened in that day. There were two crops. There were barley and wheat. Barley was planted, and barley was har harvested first, and then after that, we harvested wheat. So they were coming back at the prime time. If you could ever come back to Bethlehem, this would be the time. And this is the way that they had means for food and for you know, provision. And so they came back right as the harvest was starting. They went through both harvests, and they got to be there. See, God was providing. God was providing. They got there at just the right time. And I just want to say this to all of us today. Even when life is hard, even when the suffering feels nearly unbearable, even when life looks like all is lost, even when everything is broken in our minds beyond repair, even when the circumstances of our lives include what we would call famine and death, God is still sovereign and God is still good and he's still at work even when you can't see it. And that's faith. That's hope. We believe that he's worked even when we can't see it. And he always 
always provides a way forward. And that way forward is through Hesed love. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. I just want to say this, though. I want to give you a spoiler alert. When it says God is always providing, spoiler alert, Ruth marries again. She marries a man named Boaz. They have a son named Obed. Obed has children who get married who have children. And then one of those children get married, and Jesse is that son. Jesse gets married and has a son named David. David gets married and then across the generations until at one point, one of David's ancestors, one of David's children, I mean, offspring, has a baby named Jesus Christ. God is always at work, you guys. Always at work. Will you bow your heads and let's pray? God, I just want to thank you for this truth and that we would be able to um, embrace it even when we are in a place where we can't see your hand, even when we can't see you working. Help us to have faith today because of what we've heard and help us to have a kind of hope we sing about today and trust in you. And God, I just want to remind us today that it's easy to, we just need to come to you and there's moments where we have this shake our fist at God moments and we, need to, we just need to do it. It's faith. It's not a lack of faith to shake your fist at God. It's faith. It's belief. It's belief knowing that he's all powerful and he's all good and you're asking him for him to work in your life with his Hesed love. And God, I pray for those of us in the room who feel lonely today that, uh, that we need others to come around us to show us Hesed love, that our church will become stronger all the time and being able to bring the kind of commitment to love, the covenant to love that never gives up, that sticks to it no matter what, and that we would show that this is a place where you can be loved, even if you're broken, even if you make mistakes, even if your life's a mess, even if you have failures, even if you wish you had done things differently, even if you're poor, even if you're rich, even if go down the list, that we will stand with you because God stands with us. And I just thank you, God, for that promise. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.